I'm Lindsay Claiborne. And I'm Mumu Shu, and you are listening to Beyond the Microscope. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Microscope. Today's guest is Dr. Joanne Kamins, the Executive Director of Adgene. Joanne, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So um, this is the question we seem to always start with. What is it that you do as the Executive Director of Adgene, and what is Adgene? Uh, so that's a good question. So I guess I have to start with what Adgene is to kind of talk about what I do. Um, so Adgene is a very unusual nonprofit biotechnology organization. Um, and uh, we're a service organization, which means that we're not doing drug discovery or um, basic research, but although we do a little bit of that now, what we do is collect uh, reagents from scientists around the world. Our initial products were plasmids. We collected plasmids, which are little circles of DNA. I can tell you more about plasmids if we have time later. And we collect them from scientists around the world in dozens of countries, and we help scientists share them by keeping an archive at the organization, and then we distribute them back out to scientists around the world. And so executive director is like the CEO of a nonprofit, so I'm the head of the company, and I'm lucky to still be working with one of the three founders, um, Melina Fan, who is still at Adgene, and then a leadership team, and about um, altogether about 80 people who make the sharing magic happen. And so, that, and so on a day-to-day basis, I do a lot of personnel management, a lot of outreach and business development, uh, and a lot of uh, fun reading about science and keeping up with what's hot and new and exciting. Okay, as a non-bio expert, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, why do you do this? Yeah, so plasmids are, so, sci- you know, chromosomes are long and complicated, right? And when scientists want to study one gene or they want to manipulate a gene, they work with it on this little circle of DNA called a plasmid that's three to four orders of magnitude smaller than a chromosome. So they're easy to manipulate, they're easy to mutate, change, um, study, you know, make a protein that turns things green, whatever you want to do. That's, that's the tool, it's like the molecular toolbox. If you had a whole, you know, toolkit with all these different size screwdrivers and pliers and wrenches, that's what plasmids are. They do all kinds of different things. Um, and what happens is scientists make them in their laboratories. They take a certain amount of time. They need to be quality controlled and validated. They use them in experiments and then they put them in the freezer. And it's a huge waste of energy because if you're in Brazil studying diabetes, you might want to have a certain mutation of the insulin gene. And I'm in New Zealand studying diabetes and I want to study the same thing. Why should we both make that thing? It's a big waste of time for scientists. It's also a waste of funding funders resources by the way, as an aside. Um, So what we do is collect the, especially the useful ones. So some plasmids are obviously more useful than others. They're more applicable to different fields and different um, other laboratories might want to use them. And so we collect them, collect the data on them. We quality control them. We validate them. We store three copies in different places. So there's an archive. And then we make them really easy to request very cheaply. And we also can access scientists in over almost 100 countries. So it's very hard for you to ship something to me if I'm, um, you know, Australia or Mexico or Russia. But we, by centralizing things, we solve all those problems and we can get stuff to everybody everywhere. This seems like a logistical, I don't want to say nightmare, but (laughs) a conundrum, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, that's a, that's a good. People don't ask us about the logistics that often. It's so funny. People think like there's one person in at at Adgene boxing up all the plasmids. We ship about, 
600 items a day, um, over 600 items a day in about over 300 boxes. So um, it's a whole team. Um, We have a whole team of people who focus on import, export, solving export issues. Um, And they're they're fantastic at customer service. They answer the phones, they answer emails, and they help people overcome, you know, these issues. And we'll, we'll, we'll kind of move, you know, we'll move mountains to get something to somebody. We've shipped plasmids to Iraq. Um, You know, that was a hard one. Yeah, Um, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, we, you know, we've shipped plasmids to a lot of strange places, a small island off the coast of Spain. Like, if there's a scientist there that needs it, we're going to get it to you, you know. So. so how does, I mean, now that I know you exist, if I needed plasmids, I'd know where to go. But how, is it word of mouth? Is it sort of like if you work in any field that requires plasmids, you know about AdGene and it solves your problems? I mean, how does how do you find the scientists and the scientists find you? Yeah, it's a really good question. So, you know, we have, we're, um, we've been growing a lot in the last five or six years. Um, and I know, I don't know, you know a little bit, I'm sure, about the genome engineering revolution. So um, one of the great things that the genome engineering revolution did for Agene is that the founders of that movement, the people discovering that in 2012, 2013, were all big supporters of Agene. And they all deposited their materials um, at the repository as their papers were being published, these very seminal, very important papers. And in their papers, they said, these plasmids will be available at Agene. And so what happened was those very, a lot of scientists jumped on this bandwagon because the technology is so, so transformative and exciting for molecular science that they all went, oh, we can get this stuff right away at Agene. And we're, you know, hundreds of plasmids are going out the door is what happens. And, but it also put us on the map. People who didn't know about us, now pretty much every molecular biologist knows about us. And we have a marketing team and an outreach team. And they, we go to conferences, we visit scientists, we go to universities. Um, we have a team in London that focuses on Europe. We have uh, three ad genies that sit um, in London. And um, we visit Asia and Australia. And we go all over the world, basically, in person. And then we also do a lot of social media. And finally, I think probably the most important is we have a website with enormous amount of resources. And so it gets something like 200,000 you know, face uh, page views a day or something oh, wow. crazy, crazy like that. Yeah, it's like huge. And so scientists come to the repository, you know, from all areas, even the ones that are not academic scientists, but to use the resources. And, you know, if you if you look online for, I need a plasmid for X, Agene's the first thing that's going to be come up because we're, we're big now. So with through search engine optimization and through just creating a whole bunch of useful educational resources, we have an enormous amount of, um, we have a blog that's very well read. Uh, it's like 100,000 views a month also. So um, it's sort of an inbound SciComm marketing thing happening. And so a lot of scientists find out about us. And we do a lot of outreach. So one of the great things about being a nonprofit is we can do things for free. We can do things that because it's the right thing to do, not necessarily because it's lucrative. And so we do a lot of support and outreach, even for high school kids who are doing science. So, you know, early customers, if you will. So what is a typical day like for you, if one exists? <laughs> yeah, so, um, so you know, my days are rarely typical because, first of all, I get to do a lot of travel, which is one of the great things about being a scientist. Even when I was more doing bench science before I was in management, I got to go to a lot of conferences in extremely cool places. 
Um, for Adgene, I get invited to speak and I also do outreach trips in some extremely interesting places. So I do have quite a bit of travel. Um, and so that's not a typical day because I'm on the road. I, this last, um, in the last few years, I've been to China, Senegal, Copenhagen, Nebraska. Um, you know, <laughs> like throwing Nebraska. That was good. <laughs> yeah, like it's a very, very diverse type of, and I love to go to different places. So that's super fun for me. Um, and then, you know, but if I'm in the office, um, a lot of my time is spent working on personnel um, issues. So um, creating um, development opportunities for the staff, meaning ways that they can learn and grow. Uh, I think people, I have a very strong feelings about management. So um, all the managers at Adgene are trained to, with a certain philosophy and a certain outlook. And so that's, you know, I take that as a responsibility to make sure that all of our managers are good at managing. Um, people that aren't good managers can be at Adgene. They just won't manage people. They would do something else. Um, so that's kind of a principle. Um, I deal with, you know, um, hiring and, and um, you know, moving people around. So we, we like to play to people's strengths at Adgene. So people often move around the company. Uh, we like to promote from within if we can. So developing people's careers as long as they can stay. It's a small company, so we don't have opportunities for everyone. Um, you know, dealing with occasional interpersonal issues. Um, so right now, Adgene is moving to new space. So some days involve me sitting with the build and design teams as I have to decide, like, where does the car CO2 manifold need to go? And should we have glass, half glass on this wall or full glass? And is this enough space? And, and I have to read a lease. So it's pretty, like, diverse. Like, I never really know exactly what I'm going to be doing. Um, I don't know. Is that, no, I could go into no, so many, many different you, you things. You hinted but. at this that you you are doing obviously doing management now and, and running this this organization. But you said you've done bench science for a long time. The first question is, do you miss it? And the second question is, what were you doing when you were doing bench science, and how does that inform what you do now? Yeah, so that's that's. So I was a. I started in grad school as a molecular techie. So it really informs. You never know where your career is going to go, but it really informs what I do now. So in my graduate lab, I was um, designing a, a system, a molecular system with plasmids to allow people to search for proteins that bind to other proteins. Um, this is now called the two hybrid system. And I was one of the people that helped. One of the labs that designed that system originally. Um, in the in the sort of late 80s and uh, we were we liked molecular technology I'm intrigued by ways to use molecular biology to do clever you know clever science things and then I moved it right from graduate school into a pharma position and I did bench work molecular biology and in, in this that pharma company for 15 years uh, it was BASF and then it became a company called Abbott same office for 15 years the company got bought in the middle very common um, and I eventually was the group leader in molecular biology for the immunology function of Abbott Bioresearch Center, so Abbott Pharmaceuticals, which has now become AbbVie. Um, and so I really loved bench work. I was good at it. I had good hands. Not everybody, you know, <laughs> has that. You know those people that don't. I was lucky. I, I had pretty good hands. And um, I really liked doing it. But um, what I, I discovered, it was funny. I, I had more and more people reporting to me over time at the company. And at some point, you're managing so many people that you just, it, your administrative and managerial tasks sort of overcome 
um, the time to do good bench work because obviously you need to do bench work sort of regularly. You can't like, oh, I'm not going to do bench work today. My experiment will just sit in the incubator. That doesn't work very well um, with most experiments, especially human research, human cells. So I got to that point where it was really becoming a struggle to keep my experiments going. And I had to do a lot of sort of introspection. Like, am I really ready? Maybe I want to tell them I don't want to get promoted. Maybe I don't want more people in my group, you know, which is a thing, right? You could say, oh, I, that's it. I don't want any more people. Um, but what I realized was that what I really, really like about science is data. Like, figuring out what went wrong, looking at the data and troubleshooting it and like, how can we make this better? And I don't know if I would have felt that way maybe 10 years before, but after doing bench work for some 20 years, starting from an undergraduate, I felt like, I guess I sort of had that under my belt, you know? Mm -hmm. And when you have 10 people reporting to you, you get to look at data every day. <laughs> so, so it's like data bonanza. That's what I always say. You know, the more people reported to me, the more data I was looking at. So, um, so I pretty quickly realized that I was still going to get that same thrill of solving the problem of figuring it out that I got from pipetting with my hands. Um, I immediately lost credibility. <laughs> the minute that I, like, I would go into the lab every so often to develop an assay just to prove that I still could. Um, and so this actually happens at Adgene. So no one at Adgene ever knew me as a bench scientist. They only know me as a manager. And every so often I'll make a, uh, you know, like a quiet suggestion, like, oh, here's an idea. This might help this protocol. And they kind of ignore me until they try it. And then sometimes I'm right. And that's very satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> Science this still happens. It still works, you know. Uh, so um, how did you get involved with Adgene? Um, so I, I didn't know about Adgene until, um, I knew a little bit about Adgene. So my job after pharma was at a biotech, a very fast moving, uh, fast paced biotech in the Boston area. And as is normal for biotechs, you know, it, it, I was laid off at about four years for the molecules to go into development. So the research staff left the company. And, and um, about halfway through my time there, I was involved in a women's organization in Boston and we had a sort of giving back event every year where we gave awards to women in science who had done, um, who had been giving back to the community. And I got to actually give the award one year to hand it to the founder of Adgene, who's Melina Fan. And so I got to meet her and her, her she actually founded the company with her um, husband and her brother. So I got to meet her family. And, um, you know, that was my first, oh, and knowledge of Adgene because I handed her the award. So I read up on it before I gave her the award. And um, like two years later, when the company was, um, when I got laid off or sort of laid myself off in a way, um, but many, many of my connections sent me a description for an unadvertised position, which was the executive director of Adgene. And so um, this is another one of those networking, you know, stories where I just called Melina instead of going through the recruiter and figuring, you know, and said, hey, Melina, I'm interested in your job. Can we have coffee? You know, and we did. So um, I still had to go through a very rigorous interview process. But, you know, certainly that gave me, you know, a, a, a foot in the door before a lot of other people. It's a great, it's the best job. So I'm incredibly lucky. So I have a question about technology. I mean, you've been talking about all the years that you've spent on the bench and, and some of the, the skill sets and some of the things never change. But, you know, working with startups and working in environments of, of sort of fast changing technology, how do you keep a, above all of that or ahead of the curve? And how much has it really changed? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's some things that haven't, and, and I look at the technologies coming through Agene and there's some amazing new technologies that I've never done with my hands or know that much about, you know, um, how do you keep up? I guess Agene tries to help people do that with our blog and with our publications. Like how can you possibly read all the journal articles out there? And so what we do is really try and inform molecular biologists of the new tools that might be useful to them um, for that very reason, because it is so hard to keep up. Have you ever seen that that grid of, of tasks that you have to do, like what's important and what's urgent? Have you ever, there's like this, this crosshairs, you know, and one axis is what's important and what one axis is what's urgent. And one of the problems is that staying up with technology when you're a scientist is really important, but it's not urgent. And things in that quadrant, like how many people have a big stack of papers on their desk that they never read, right? Like, so I think it's really important for scientists to find a way to stay current and to keep reading and learning because we're sort of lifelong learners anyway. It's what we love about what we do. Um, and so that's a really uh, disciplined thing that I think is very hard. I love learning new things. So I was always able to sort of um, discipline myself to make sure that I was following and what's new and what's cutting edge. Also, I was able to go to conferences. So in pharma and in biotech, there's money for conferences. And um, that's a great way to catch up on what's new and what's hot, you know, sort of quickly in a big dose. So I think that staying up with the community of science um, is really, really important. And it's something that good scientists figure out a way to do it in a sustainable fashion. Did you ever did you ever sit there and go, man, I wish we had that when I was doing that kind of thing? Oh, all the time. Are all you the kidding? Time. Oh, my God. Come on. I, was sequ- I don't know how, but I was sequencing. We didn't have a sequencing machine. I was manually sequencing when I was in graduate school. So I'm, I'm old. So I have a lot. I mean, I was... I was there at the birth of one of the first PCR machines, literally, like with its out, its insides outside so that the technician could figure out how to make it work better. So um, the inventor was in our lab. So you know, some of these technologies <laughs> are like, you know, have changed science. Um, yeah, that happens all the time. Is there something that you're excited about in the f- sort of that's upcoming or, or I guess what in the next sort of five years gets you the most excited Oh, I'm, so I'm, I'm, I just, I love what I do. So I'm excited about so many things. So I guess, um, so Agene is moving to a larger space in November. Uh, we're, we'll be doubling our space pretty much. And I'm really excited that that's going to allow us to continue to serve scientists in more and different ways. And we have a lot of new projects planned. Um, we have a really big project that just started that's very new and is really, really exciting because I think it's going to be extremely impactful for scientists. Um, And so what we're doing is, um, so um, plasmids, one of the things that scientists like to do with plasmids is put them into cells, specifically human cells or eukaryotic cells, mouse cells, rat cells. And the thing about um, those cells is that it's hard to get DNA into them. If you think about your skin or the cells of your body, like DNA that's sitting around is just not getting soaked up into your cells. So one of the vehicles that scientists use to introduce the DNA, introduce the plasmid into cells, is actually a virus that's been made so that it's not infectious or unhealthy, but it's sort of a plasmid delivery vehicle, if you will. And the reason for that is viruses are really good at getting into cells. So they're like a little delivery package um, for the DNA. And so this technique is actually used in animals and in cells. Um, In particular, very much right now, a certain virus called AAV is used both in, in 
preparing for gene therapy. It's the kind of virus that's used in gene therapy and also um, for basic neuroscience research and other types of basic research because it can go to many different organs in an animal um, or get into many different types of cells. So the problem with these um, making these virus that have the plasmids in them, they're like derived from plasmids, is that it's a little bit of an art. It's not so easy to do. And if you're a brand new graduate student who's doing this for the first time, getting quality, um, a quality prep of this stuff to work really well is going to be a little difficult. It's not a trivial protocol. So what Adgene is doing is taking our most popular plasmids and making that virus for you. Um, and that pre-prepared virus is quality controlled, it's tested, it's titered, which means we know how many particles there are in each small droplet. Um, and by you know, standardizing this and centralizing it, what we're hoping to do is really help scientists speed up their research, which is our mission, and then also um, standardize the quality to make science more reproducible, which as reproducibility, as you know, is a big push these days for scientists, how to make their research um, more repeatable, more trustworthy between different laboratories. Um, and we're involved in that. So we're really excited. We just started making these AAV available and we have a partnership with the University of Pennsylvania um, uh, Viral Vector Core. And um, we're, it's, going, it's growing really, really fast. So Agene grew really small in 2004 when it was founded and it's very slow startup and gave time for the founders to kind of work out all the kinks. Um, this project, because we're so well known, is coming out like gangbusters. So we've already distributed about uh, going on 4,000 samples um, in a little over a year and things are really taking off. So we're really excited about that and we're going to need the new room, the new space and the new facility to really accommodate all the work that's going to come from this. When we're talking about all these these things, what's like a weird factoid or a, something that surprised you or, or you think is really interesting about what you're working with? Weird factoid. I mean, if there is one, uh, there doesn't have to be one. But if there's something yeah. like, I had no idea that it turns purple when, or that right. this is, you know, well, I don't know whether there's something that's so are, weird. Yeah, it's a good, well, plasmids are sort of infinitely interesting. People are coming up with the cleverest ways to use the genome engineering tools for science. It's incredible. Like, I can't get, it's so technical, it's hard for me to get into. But, <laughs> like, people are so worried about genome engineering and, and what that's going to do for, you know, clone people and he, genome engineering humans and, and all these things. But the huge, the huge boon for genome engineering has been the tools that have been created by scientists for the basic research in cells, not in vivo necessarily even, um, but in cells um, to, to allow us to understand, you know, biology better which is like a sort of unwritten story. And I am constantly amazed at the cool tools that, that people are coming up with. I mean, they're coming up with ways to like tag the chromosomes in a very specific place so we know exactly where that tag is and we can track it. You know, it's just fascinating, um, really detailed technical work, understanding of our genome. So I'm really, I think that's really fun to read about. I love reading the papers for those reagents. Um, so, Joanne, you mentioned that you do a lot of outreach, um, that your company does a lot of outreach. Can you talk a little bit about what type of things you do? Sure. So, um, outreach positions are sort of a little bit of education, a little bit of SciComm, and a little bit of business development. So, um, and all, almost all of our outreach staff are, are scientists. Um, so, scientists do all kinds of jobs at Agene, which is kind of cool. 
um, SciComm, marketing, tech service, business development, um, you know, uh, management. So uh, all those different roles. So one of the roles is of outreach scientist. And um, they do, they both travel to visit with scientists and talk to them about adjunct and solicit deposits to the repository. That's one of their main jobs. But they also create all of our marketing materials. They run our website. They create all the content. They edit and write all the material on the website. Um, one of our outreach scientists runs the blog. He's the blog manager. He's fantastic. It's an amazing blog, really high quality. He also does podcasts himself. Um, he's just starting to do those around about plasmids and, and scientists that use them. Um, we also have, we're starting to do videos. So the outreach team designs videos, protocol videos and, and other types of videos, um, to help scientists learn particularly tricky techniques that video might help with that. Um, and the outreach team also does a lot of business development. So they're looking for new relationships, organizations that might want to partner with us, uh, might want to help us. Um, we don't really, um, Agene is self-sustaining, so we don't solicit um, donations necessarily, but we do look for organizations that want to help spread the word and, um, you know, uh, partner marketing-wise or, or message-wise or, you know, communicate to their scientists that their scientists should be working with Agene. And so uh, they're always on the hunt for those relationships that we want to propagate. So that's kind of classic business development is, Business development is like looking for relationships, basically, that should become something bigger. And so they do all those things. Um, they have a lot of responsibilities. We're doing a lot of educational initiatives, and that mostly lives in the outreach team. A lot of people at Agene help, but they're the sort of owners of that content. One of Agene's core values is diversity, and I've been, I'm the founder of the Massachusetts chapter of the Association for Women in Science, um, which is um, about... 12 years old now. Well, yeah, I want to talk to you a little bit about, about the organization. Um, you know, obviously taking, making the extra effort and concerted effort to start an organization for women in science. Why was that important for you? And how does that manifest in what you do at Edging? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a funny, like a bit of a funny story, actually. So I had been working at Abbott for some years. Um, and I just like woke up one day and went like, I don't see any women. It was a weird thing. Um, I had been in meetings all week because I was on quite a few different project teams at that point. I was running one project team. Um, and it was me and all men. And um, I think I, it was like one Friday afternoon and some guy asked me to take minutes at the meeting, even though it was my meeting. Like I was the leader oh. of the meeting. Like I was the most senior person in the room. Okay. And, um, you know, I just kind of had this weird, like, what is going on, you know? So I, I marched into the office of the only female director of like nine directors. One of them was a woman. And I'm like, what is going on? Where are the women? You know? And she's like, I don't know. Where have they gone? And so we had this sort of epiphany that a lot of women had left even in the last year or so um, for various different reasons that somewhat had to do with the fact that they were women. It was just a weird co set of coincidences or maybe not coincidences. Um, and so that left me as one of the most senior women in the company. And I was not very senior. So it was quite shocking. Um, so the company at the time was not very, it was a different day and age. The company was not very woke to what was going on with this stuff. Um, and so we, we created this women's group um, and we snuck around. We did it outside the building. We would have lunch outside somewhere else. Um, it was the whole thing. Okay. 
Um, and then eventually things started, the, our women's network came, we were acquired by a different company, that company had a women's network, and it was a little bit more aware of, of some of the issues. And at about that time, I started, I'm a scientist, right? So I see this problem. There's no women. I start doing research, right? That's what I do. So I'm yeah. online. I'm like, where are the women? Literally, I'm on the early internet. And I'm like, where? And so um, the Association for Women in Science was a national organization, is a national organization, um, an advocacy organization for women in science and STEM. And, um, but there was no chapter in Boston. And I'm like, how can that possibly be? Right. This is Boston. There's like more women scientists than anywhere in the world. How can we not have a chapter? So it turned out that the chapter had been active in the 80s, but it folded when Title IX was passed. And I don't know if you guys, rem huh, you guys okay. remember that. but That's a strange comparison. Like well, marker. because Title IX, it was all going to be fair. Oh, we right. The problem. Course. Sorry, I forgot. It's all, it's all fair. It's, it's salary, equities, pay equity. Women Magic. Are equal up. Magic. It's all going to be fair. And so the, the, there was sort of an apathy that resulted, and the chapter fell apart. So um, I sort of re, I refounded it again in about nine, the mid-90s. And now it's the biggest chapter in the country. I'm really proud of it. It's a fantastic um, group of leaders running it. And we have a really big mentoring program, which is another area of interest of mine, um, is how to use mentoring to help with diversity of all types. So I've also been involved in racial diversity and gender orientation and gender and disability. And because um, I really feel like if you're a scientist, you have to be able to be a scientist. And, and one good thing is coming to Adgene, that was sort of a core value already at Adgene. And so it's really allowed me to work with a group of people that care about diversity and inclusion in a, in a real way, in a genuine way, not a lip service way. And so I, I've, really honed some of my ideas by working with the company. How do we hire more diversely? How do we treat people fairly? Um, and I, I write some about this online about um, pay review and promotion and how to hire more fairly and um, really working hard to kind of like my microcosm where I can experiment with what works and what doesn't to increase the diversity of the company and the, the fairness. Do you, um, do you see a pipeline problem? Um, I do. I mean, we have had, you know, I, I, I do see a pipeline problem, but I don't think that's the biggest problem. I think the biggest problem is, you know, fair treatment so that people see themselves in, you know, all different types of people can see themselves in a successful role. So I think the lack of mentors of different, lack of diverse mentors is or this, I should say not the lack, there are some great ones, the small number of diverse mentors. People really need to see themselves in the people they aspire to be in a way. And, you know, if it's all um, one type of person and you don't see yourself, you know, you don't see your Latina self there um, very often as a scientist or in STEM, it's a little harder to get there. And if you don't have a mentor that can help you work through those, the biases that you're experiencing, because you are certainly experiencing bias, um, it can be harder. So, you know, obviously we do. So AWIS would say that is for women. I'm not talking about under, under other underrepresented groups, but for women, if you look in biology, we have been 50% or more of the pipeline for decades, decades. Okay. And women are not moving into leadership roles. And that's, that's the bias that we're talking about. That's not a pipeline issue. That is the societal biases, um, implicit and explicit, if you will, so bias and harassment, if you will, um, 
that are keeping women from being able to progress fairly. And how do you think we fix that? Yeah, that's a that's, that's <laughs> the question, right? Oh, how do we man. fix that? <laughs> so I, I, I vocally, I write a lot about this. You know, I think that leaders, I mean, I think the world is waking up a little bit. So um, for good or for bad, I think we're going to go through a very hard time while men figure out, you know, um, and women for that matter, how how do we be equal with people instead of the small number of jerks that have made it hard for everyone. So we all have biases, women and men. That's a harder problem than getting rid of the very few people who are truly um, harassing. Although there are data that show that biased, um, very biased cultures give rise to more overt harassment. Um, so that's where that lives. Um, if you have an organization that really works hard on bias and really talks about diversity, you're going to have less of the overt damaging, really damaging stuff. Um, we have a lot to learn. We have a lot of work to do. Uh, I think we all just have to really, um, men, women, everybody has to get their head out of the sand and start talking about these things, calling out, you know, inequities and things that are unfair around them and being advocates for one another. And I think most good people will actually do that. And I, I think over time, now that we have more people awake and aware of the value of inclusion. Um, so what I hear from people is, I can't be worried about diversity because I won't hire the right person. And my feeling is, is if you're not aware of diversity and bias, you will not get the best person because you will overlook them in your hiring process. And so, to my mind, we have to be really, really open-minded if we want quality people and quality staff and quality teams, if you will. Do you think we're in a better position now than we were 20 years ago? Oh, ouch. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to say yes. I'm going to so, say yes because so I, I, I didn't know where to go with that. Um, do I think we're better? Yes, it's better because more people are speaking up and because with social media and media, um, some of the worst stuff we're calling out and it allow it's allowing people to get together so one of the things that is happening is women from different places and people I'm going to say people from different places that care about these issues are able to get together find each other and speak up when they see something wrong right so I think that the the the, the climate is better there's going to be a lot of backlash and there's going to be a lot of people digging their heels in and there's a, still a lot of misogynist, racist, sexist, bad people out there that need to get with the program. But I think a lot of people are starting to see, and, and the younger generation, the numbers really show that people really believe there needs to be more fairness. Well, on that note, which I is very uplifting and optimistic, <laughs> and I hope you're right. I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> um, Joanne, thank you so much for joining us. This has okay. been great. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, you're still here. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. Help other people find this podcast by giving us a rating on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Scope Podcast. Our theme music was composed by The Copy Cuts. Copy Cuts.